Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Father, we are reminded by your prophet Jeremiah that you loved Israel with an everlasting love, that just as you used them the first time to bring about the coming of the Messiah, you will use them the second time to bring his return from heaven. Thank you that though they have been unfaithful, you are faithful to them. And thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. Though our hearts are prone to wander, you promised you would never leave us nor forsake us. And that this grace should teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. You've given us a commission in these days. May we be faithful to it. We thank you for the internet and the opportunities for godliness that it brings our church and churches across America. We pray for the many unreached peoples who need to know and hear the love of Christ. We pray that you would use our services to help. We pray for those people in different time zones who have very little Bible teaching to hear. May you bless them. May you strengthen them. May you give us in this brand new week opportunities. May we be sensitive to the people around us. Grow in this hour, especially this service and the Graniteville service and the Hilton Head Bluffton service. We pray this week that if you would bring someone into our path, that we would reach out and care for them. If you put that in our heart to do, help us not to miss that. Now we humbly come before you as your people. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We ask that you would give us minds to understand. Thank you for the teacher, the Spirit of God, our helper. May he illumine its truth. Come and fill me, Holy Spirit, anoint me. Because without you, I can't do anything, but with you, all things are possible. May you work in each and every life that hears this message, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Many have called Daniel 9 the high point in the book of Daniel. There are many mountain peaks of prophecy in the book of Daniel, but Daniel 9 is really the Mount Everest of all of his visions. And indeed, your understanding of Daniel 9 will influence your understanding of the great prophetic passages in the Word of God. What we find in the ninth chapter is God's blueprint, God's plan for the people of Israel. God's plan for Israel, beginning with the first coming of Messiah, all the way until the second coming, until his return from heaven. And Bible prophecy is very important for us to study, because in essence, it is history pre-written. And when you understand the importance of Bible prophecy, it will change your life. You will see that it's not peripheral to the purposes of God, but central. Nearly one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. Not just the major and minor prophets, a number of the Psalms are prophetic. Uh, there are some books in the New Testament like First and Second Thessalonians that are largely prophetic. Revelation, major sections like Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, First Peter chapter 3, Second Peter 3. So to ignore Bible prophecy is to ignore something that God deems is very important. All Scripture, including the prophetic passages are given by God and they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness that the man of God might be equipped for every good deed. In fact, only about half of all the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus have yet been fulfilled. When Paul gathered the Ephesian elders on a beach, he said to them, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so if a pastor is to be faithful, he is to teach the whole plan of God. You can't just teach Daniel in the lion's den in this book. You have to teach the entire section because it's very important. And unfortunately, we live in a day 
where Bible prophecy is being downplayed. Rick Warren, in his best-selling book, The Purpose-Driven Life, says this. He really mocks those who are studying Bible prophecy. He said, if you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on your mission, not figuring out prophecy. And then he characterized the study of prophecy as, quote, a distraction in someone who is involved in it as not fit for the kingdom of God. But such a dismissal is not worthy of the Scripture. For in Revelation 19 and verse 10, the Bible says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if you understand prophecy rightly, you are going to learn more and more about our great Savior whom He loves, whom we love. I hope you love Him. Let me give you five practical reasons by way of introduction as to why you should want to study Bible prophecy. First, prophecy reveals something about God's faithfulness. That God is true to His promises. You know, there are some people today, I know they mean well, but they are lacking understanding. They say that God is done with Israel. The church has become the new Israel. I wouldn't call them heretics, but I would call that a heresy. Because there are scores of promises in the Bible that affirm that God is not done with Israel. Promises that go all the way until the second coming of Christ. And to dismiss those is really to call God unfaithful and potentially a liar. Secondly, prophecy does much to demonstrate the inspiration of Scripture. There's no other book on the planet that has fulfilled prophecy except the Bible. There's none in the Quran, none in the Book of Mormon, none in the Upanishads, none in any religious book except the Holy Bible. Third, prophecy in its study helps to us to understand our future as believers. God has a future for us. He is sovereign. He is in the heavens. He knows what He is about. He is not up there wrangling His hands over what is taking place in this world. And it gives you a sense of confidence that God is sovereign. Fourth, if you study prophecy, it will change your life. You will never be the same. In fact, virtually every command in Scripture that deals with prophecy, there's an exhortation as to how you should live, what you should do with that prophecy. And I can tell you finally, it will make you a soul winner. Because my friend, there is coming a day when it's all going to be over. There's a lot of things we do now as a church that we will do in heaven. But there is one thing you will not do. You will not evangelize anyone in heaven. Now, when we come to the ninth chapter, we need to slow down just a little bit, though I'm going to go like a rocket today to the introduction of the 70 weeks prophecy. Most people think of Daniel 9, they think the 70 weeks prophecy. It's one of the greatest prophecies in all of the Bible. It is a mathematical prophecy predicting the first coming of the Messiah. And many a Jew has been converted by studying it. But today we're going to look at the first 19 verses that really serve as an introduction into the 70 weeks prophecy. Now let me set the broad context here on this chart. If you remember, the book of Daniel divides into two parts. The first six chapters deal with Daniel and his personal friends. Seven through 12 deal with Daniel and his people's future. The first half of the book is largely historical with a little bit of prophecy scattered in. The second half of the book is almost all prophetic with a little bit of history. And so 7 through 12 are filled with dreams and visions and important prophetic information as it relates to the future. And so remember 1 through 6, and I'll give you the chart again next week to refresh your mind, 1 through 6 happens chronologically. 7 through 12 happens chronologically, but not after 1 through 6. You could take chapters 7 through 12 and overlay them between the events in 1 through 6. They happen in and around the events that are described there. So that's kind of the overview. Now, if you remember, here in the prophetic section, we've already looked at two major visions. The first vision in chapter 7, where it leaves Daniel with a troubled mind. The second vision in chapter 8, where it literally leaves him physically ill. If you remember the first vision, God predicts the history of the Gentile nations, which is why the liberals love to put a late date on Daniel. 
but I'll show you even the late date that they put on it when we come to the 70 weeks prophecy and the 11th chapter still doesn't erase some of the prophecies fulfilled after it. But it is so precise. It is history pre-written. Jesus described Daniel not as a historian, but as Daniel the prophet. So the seventh chapter deals with the Gentile nations climaxing with the coming of the Antichrist. The second vision in chapter 8 deals with Gentile history. And we saw why he began with the Greek Empire. And he goes through Antiochus Epiphanes, its final ruler, who is a type, he's an illustration of the coming Antichrist. More is taught to us about the Antichrist. That's the popular name for this world ruler. There's actually about 40 different names in the Bible. And I suppose Antichrist is not a bad name, though it's not totally representative of this man's work. Anti in Greek, antichristos, really doesn't mean uh, against Christ, so he is against Christ, but in the place of Christ. There's a man coming in the place of the Messiah who's going to try to deceive the world. Now, the first vision that we studied was given while Babylon was an empire. The second vision, and, and we've noted, by the way, a number of important dates. Daniel is one of the most documented books in the Bible. So when you read the first year of Belshazzar, you don't have to figure it out just by what the Jews have historically told us. You can go to the Britannica Encyclopedia and the date is nailed down. Daniel is one of the most documented books outside of the Bible in all of Scripture. And so we saw that first vision took place while the Babylonian Empire was in place, Belshazzar being its last king. The second vision took place in chapter 8, if you remember, in the third year of Belshazzar. Again, Babylon had not yet fallen. When we come to this third vision here in chapter 9, Babylon has already fallen, and according to the opening verse, Darius is the king. So the historical setting is important for us to understand and really to get a grip on what this chapter is all about. Now again, most people think of Daniel 9 and its 70 weeks prophecy. But we must not forget that the 70 weeks prophecy that Gabriel brings to him comes in response to a prayer that he prays. And so here we're going to study this morning, as you can see there in your note-taking outline, the prayer of Daniel. And it's not simply instruction on how to pray or an exhortation to pray, but as much as anything, it is an example of how we ought to pray. So let's begin with the occasion for his prayer. We are given in the first two verses that information, not just the time of the prayer, but the text of the prayer. So let's consider here the time of the prayer. Look, if you will, at verse 1 and the start of verse 2. We're told in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who is made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. Now, you can put out in the margin, it's a hard, fast, well-documented date from human history, 538 B.C. You ought to write that out there. I see some of you with electronic Bibles, and I'm not against those. I think I had one of the first electronic Bibles. I was an original tester for the program we call today Logos in 1988. So I've had an electronic Bible for decades, but there is no substitute for a paper copy. You're a new Christian. You want to find the books of the Bible. You need to find them. You don't need to let the computer find them. You need to learn your way around, and you can write things out in the Bible that will stick to your soul. I promise you, having had an electronic Bible for decades, you will learn so much more if you have a paper copy when you come to church in worship. So put out there 538 B.C. That becomes very, very important in understanding this chapter. Now, I hope you remember King Darius. In chapter 5, if you remember, it records the very last day of the Babylonian Empire. And if you recall, Belshazzar is the king. He is having a drunken party that night. He is using the holy utensils that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem, and he's mocking the God of Israel. And we are told in that chapter, in the final two verses, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So his vision here in chapter 9 is very close to the experience that he has in the lion's den. It comes right after chapter 6. Remember, these visions in 7 through 12 fit in and among the chapters. And I'll give you that chart again in our next gathering. 
And so when we met Daniel, he was around 16, 17, maybe 18 years old, based on the Hebrew word that's used for youth. But when we leave Daniel at the end of the book, when he has this vision, he's an elderly man. He's around 85, 90 years of age. That's the time of his prayer. Let's consider the text of his prayer. We read here in verse 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he has the scrolls. It's on more than one scroll. Jeremiah is a big book. And he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. He's having his quiet time there. What is he reading? Well, take your Bible, turn to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. It's just to the left of Daniel. You'll find it easy. Jeremiah chapter 25. And I want you to notice, um, let me just set the, uh, the ministry of Jeremiah in your mind. If you remember, for the first 120 years, the kingdom of Israel was united under its first three kings. Saul, David, Solomon. They each ruled for 40 years, exactly 40 years, 120 years total. Because of the compromise of Solomon, God said that he was going to tear the kingdom in two, and indeed he did. The ten northern tribes are known as Israel. Sometimes they're called Ephraim in the Old Testament. After one of the larger tribes, sometimes it's called uh, Israel in Samaria, because the capital became not Jerusalem for these people, but Samaria, and that stuck for a century. So when a woman's from Samaria meets Jesus at a well, which place should we worship, in Jerusalem or in Samaria? And of course, the southern two tribes later on, they are attacked by Babylon, and we study that in the opening chapter of the book of Daniel. And so they're carried away, they're called Judah. So initially, sometimes you're reading the Bible, Israel is referring to all 12 tribes, but at a certain time, Israel's referring to just 10 tribes and the two southern tribes after the larger of the two, namely Judah. And so here's a man who ministers to the southern kingdom, to the southern tribes. Look at verse 8 of Jeremiah 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror hand of hissing, a horror hand of hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, verse 10, I will take them from the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, that's a sermon in itself, and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. Verse 11, this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, just a few pages over. Jeremiah in this chapter deals with the false prophets of his day. And they said, it's not going to be 70 years. Just relax. Take a deep breath. We're going to be delivered in a short amount of time. And so Jeremiah tells him, don't listen to these false teachers. Verse 5, he says, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Then in verse 8, he says, Don't listen to these guys, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years, there it is again, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Why 70 years? Why not seven years? Why not 270 years? God has a reason for everything he does. There are no accidents in the Bible. Put out in the margin next to Jeremiah 29 and 10, this text, Leviticus 25, 3 and 4. Leviticus 25, 3 and 4. As you're writing it, I'll read it. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest a Sabbath to the Lord. 
You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Also put next to verse 10, 2 Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. 2 Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. Those who have escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept until 70 years were complete. Now the principle of crop rotation and giving a piece of property rest actually comes from the Scriptures. And God knew in this fallen world that they needed to work the land six years and let it rest one year. And of course, it was an act of faith in the sixth year to believe God when they weren't growing any crops to provide for their food needs, and he did. The problem was, is they became faithless. And so for 490 years, they ignored the clear command of God. God kept selling, telling them by his prophets, don't do this, don't do this. They didn't listen to him. And so God says, okay, you won't give my land rest, then I'll give it rest. And so the time of this deportation to Babylon is 70 years by a purpose. Now back in Daniel 9, go back to Daniel 9. Remember, uh, the 70 years begins when Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, most of us know them by their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We should know them by their Jewish names. That's when the deportation begins in 605 B.C. And there are three times they're carried away. That's all by introduction back in the opening sermon to this book. And so that's 605 B.C. This is 538 B.C. This is the first year of Darius' reign. What does that tell you? It tells you that 67 of the 70 years had gone by. And so Daniel recognizes that he is living on the threshold of the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy. I, Daniel, verse 2, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. By the way, Daniel believed in a literal interpretation of prophecy. Most of our Reformed friends today that use that label, that have stolen a good label, just like our charismatic friends have stolen a good label. I'm a charismatic in that I believe that God gives spiritual gifts. If you believe in the five solars of the Reformation, then you're Reformed. Nonetheless, people today who call themselves Reformed, when they look at the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, they say the 70th week, and it's going to be divided, that prophecy, into three parts, has already been fulfilled. What are they doing? They are spiritualizing prophecy. And so Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible but one, Revelation, because he didn't know what to do with Revelation. He was mixed up on his ecclesiology, and that made him mixed up on his eschatology. And if you spiritualize prophecy like Augustine and Calvin did, you will come to some very different kinds of conclusions. But modeled within the prophets themselves, modeled within the Lord Jesus' teaching, modeled within the writers of the rest of the New Testament, they always interpreted prophecy with the same method of interpretation for the rest of Scripture, with a literal, grammatical, historical principle or hermeneutic, all right? So Daniel believes 70 years meant 70 years. That shouldn't shock us. That's the occasion for his prayer. Secondly, you with me? All right, the humility in his prayer. Let's think about the humility in his prayer. You know, when you pray, God's not interested just in the words you use as much as he is with the attitude of your heart. And we learn that this man first prays a very attentive prayer. Verse 3 says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication. Two words, first prayer. It's a Hebrew word that means intercession. When you pray for someone else. And then supplications. It's a Hebrew word that means a request for mercy. So here's Daniel. And he said, I gave my attention to the Lord. I like the King James here because it's most literal. It, it just literally interprets the Hebrew. I set my face unto the Lord your God. Have you ever set your face to seek God in prayer? You see, many times we have casual kind of take it or leave it kind of prayer. 
But Daniel sets his face. He recognizes that God needs his full attention, that God is the most important person in the world. Jesus highlights this principle in Matthew 6, 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so while we are to pray without ceasing, while we are to be in a spirit of prayer, there are times when we go into whatever your prayer closet is, your car. I literally have a closet in my home where I hang my clothes. I've got a closet in my office where I shut out the whole world and I seek God's face. It's a form of humility. Daniel said, I set my face to the Lord God. I gave him my full attention. So it's an attentive prayer. Secondly, he prayed a broken prayer. He prayed a broken prayer. Now, when we studied Daniel 6, which is the time frame of again, which this prophecy takes place, we learned something about the frequency of his prayer. At least three times a day, he shut himself up to pray to God. But here we learn something about the fervency he has in prayer. Look at verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He uses... Fasting added to it sackcloth and ashes, which speaks of intensity. Remember, he is in a position of leadership. Someone who works in the White House doesn't go there in their blue jeans. They go there with leadership clothes. He would have done the same in Babylon. He would have been given rich clothes, but he humbles himself. He puts on sackcloth and literal ashes on his face. What is he saying? He's saying, God, I am but dust. I am nothing in your Sight, I need your help, O God. And so that's how Old Testament saints expressed it. Now, one common trait of his prayer that carries over into the new covenant is that of fasting. I'm not saying you shouldn't put on sackcloth or ashes, but there are no examples in the New Testament. But certainly today, even in Jewish thinking and in the average Christian who knows the Word of God, which makes him not an average person because most Christians no longer know their Bibles, they recognize that fasting is a form of humility before God. One of the most commonly asked questions we've had over the years in the Bible line and that people will ask me in the hallways is, should we fast today? So let me speak for just a moment and to put fasting and the context of the day in which we live in. First of all, fasting is not dieting. It's not dieting. Uh, you know, as a pastor, I get Christian or pastoral spam. And one that came to my inbox was entitled, Fastings for Blessings. Let me read a portion of it to you. The founder of this ministry said, You're about to step into the shower when the mirror catches your eye. What do you see? Look at your waist, your arms, your hips, that tummy. Does the sight of those bulges and rolls depress you? And when you get on the scale, do you think to yourself, this is awful. I can't go on like this. Something has to be done. If you're in that situation, take heart. You're about to read something that will make your spirit sing with joy and relief. And then he gives a series of testimonies. Here's SP from Oregon. Fasting really works. Thanks to your program, help the devil wants me fat and God's strength. I was able to finally gain control of my appetite. At first, I couldn't believe it was really working, but as time went on, I realized the program really works. I never dreamed I could lose my cravings for sweets, but I did. Praise God. I lost 18 pounds on the 10th day of my fast, and my eating habits have totally changed. I wouldn't have believed it was possible, but it happened to me. Now, I'm not giving any endorsement to this ministry, but let me clearly say fasting is not dieting. It is not done to lose weight. You may lose weight, but it is not done to lose weight. For that matter, neither is it just cutting back on food. Some Christians today speak of a partial fast, and they misinterpret Daniel 1. We covered that in depth. We saw that those men in Daniel 1 refrained from certain food, not as a partial fast, but because of the idolatrous nature of those foods, probably too, some would have been considered unclean under the old covenant and therefore forbidden. Some think of fasting as they speak. There's a lot of Christians that talk today about a fruit juice fast. And so for 30 days or 10 days, they, they drink fruit juices. Well, that's not a fast. It might be a sacrifice, but it's not a fast. Um, what is fasting in the Bible? It's either no food, no water, which, of course, you could only do for a short time, or typically simply no food. Esther 4.6, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa 
and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. Thus, I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. But most often in Scripture, fasting is simply no food plus water. Luke 4, Matthew 4, the famous fast of our Savior. But let's ask another question. Why are God's people too fast? Well, it's certainly not done to get God's attention or to impress Him. Um, We have no righteousness in ourself. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. And that same prophet addressed the people of Israel who are fasting, but out of the wrong spirit. Listen to these words from Isaiah 58. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So they were fasting, they were religiously outside, but on the inside their hearts were just disobeying basic premises of God. Let me give you a definition of fasting. Fasting is simply typically going without food for a specified period of time to seek a spiritual goal, for a spiritual goal. Now, Jesus assumed we would fast. Listen to these words, Matthew six seventeen. But when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, and I'm not talking to people who can't fast, you've got some medical issues, so don't sue me, all right? When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Now, unfortunately, that page seems to be torn out of most Bibles in practice. We talk a lot today in the church about sacrificial prayer and sacrificial giving, but very little about fasting. But as I just noted, a fast is an abstention from food. You had a fast last night. You woke up and you had breakfast. You didn't eat unless you're chained to the refrigerator and you get up in the middle of the night. You didn't eat during the night. You had a fast of sorts. So what are the reasons to fast? There are many, but let me highlight a few. Number one, to humble yourself before God. To humble yourself before God. In Ezra chapter 8, you see this humility expressed. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and anger against all those who forsake him. He was ashamed to ask the king for help. He had been bragging about how great God is indeed. He made his boast in the Lord. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter and he listened to our entreaty. God, we need your help for our safety, for our loved ones, and for your own honor and glory. A second reason, to intensify your prayer life. To intensify your prayer life. Paul said this principle in 2 Corinthians 12, which you could certainly apply to fasting. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distressions, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, it may seem like a paradox, but it is actually in our weakness that we find strength. And fasting has a way of strengthening your prayer life. Practically speaking, you don't have to go to the restaurant or you don't have to prepare the food or clean up after that food. So you have some extra time for prayer. And in addition, every time you hear that hunger pain shouting out, I need to eat, It becomes a signal to seek God and to pray. King David in Psalm 35 said, I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. He kept having those hunger pains and it shouted to him, pray. And so fasting allows you to humbly seek God in prayer and to more earnestly seek him in prayer. Fasting has a way of intensifying your prayer life. That's why the Lord Jesus said in reference to the disciples who couldn't cast out a demon, but this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. You are giving your full attention 
And so it's in fasting that the Spirit of God prompts you how to pray. He often tells you what to pray for, and He often teaches you and shows you things from the Scriptures you are studying that He will show you in no other place. Let me give you a third reason. To help discern God's specific will for your life. To help discern God's specific will. Now, there's God's general will. We don't debate about that. But then there's God's specific personalized will as it relates to your life. And so, for instance, in Acts 13, the church in Antioch, we read, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. While they were ministering, the Net Bible says, while they were serving the Lord, the Holy Spirit said to the church there, set apart these two men. They were ministering to the Lord. That's not a synonym for prayer. It goes back to the verb in verse 1. These men who were prophets and teachers, they were ministering to God as prophets and teachers. The problem we have today, my son-in-law up there, we were discussing it on last night. More and more men are feeling the pressure of the culture. And so they want to respond to the pressure of people in their congregations as to what those people think they should do. And they're not really ministering to God, they're ministering to people. And in the end, they end up compromising themselves. Well, these men were ministering to the Lord God as prophets and teachers. And by the way, God doesn't usually speak and work in the hearts of those who just need to be dusted off. No, God works in those who are involved in ministry, those who are engaged in service. And so as they minister to God, as they pray, as they fast, God gives unction. Listen to this verse, Acts 14, 23. When they had appointed elders for them from in every church, having prayed with fasting, I don't make a major decision as it relates to my life, my family, or this church without prayer and fasting. Now, there's some prayer and fasting that needs to be done corporately. Some giving that's done corporately. Some prayer that is done corporately. In fact, the three things Jesus says to do in private, not to be seen by men, there are also three equal commands in the Bible to do publicly. When we sought the two elders, one of whom you heard last week, we spent time, I did, and I know most of the other elders did, in prayer and fasting over the course of a year because we wanted to know God's will. These men prayed with fasting. Let me give you another reason to fast, to express repentance before God. To express one's repentance in prayer, either as a church, as a nation, as an individual. There are many examples in Scripture. Even unbelievers, Jonah 3, all the Ninevites put on sackcloth and ashes. They fast and they pray. And God relents concerning His judgment. The greatest revival possibly in all the Bible. In Nehemiah, you f- Nehemiah chapter 9, you find God's people fasting with repentance. Listen to these words. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. A true expression of repentance. And some of us really don't show brokenness of heart, which God does not despise, until we fast and confess over those sins. A fourth reason uh, is to seek God's help for an impossible situation. To seek God's help, next slide, for an impossible situation. Next slide, there we go, come on guys, there we go, all right. To seek God's help for an impossible situation. Queen Esther, I already read that text. You go assemble all the Jews found there in Susa. Fast with me. Don't eat and drink. Call out to God because I'm going to do something that could mean my death. 2 Samuel 12, 22, David sought God fasting in prayer. While the child, his little baby, was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. So God answered his prayer. In this case, God said, no, the child's not going to live. But he had an answer from God in response to prayer and fasting. He got help for an impossible situation, and God gave him comfort in it. Even in the brokenness of heart, God gave him assurance that he would see that precious little baby. And God worked in the king's heart when Esther came into her presence. Some of you this morning, you have an impossible situation. You have a 
a friend, you have a relative, you have a son, a daughter who's hooked on drugs. Some of you have a troubled marriage this morning. Some of you, you have a financial disaster in your home. And you would be wise to seek God in prayer and in fasting and seek God for an impossible situation. And so these are just a few of many reasons we could give for fasting. But listen, if God left us these numerous Old Testament examples, if Jesus said we should pray and fast, if the early church prayed and fast, if Christian leaders throughout the centuries have prayed and fast, then we must be careful not to relegate this to the Old Testament as something that God's people no longer do. And one of the reasons today the church is so weak, so anemic, and so powerless is because God's people do not fast. Now, while we're on the subject, let me give a few caveats. Number one, fasting, when you do it, you are to avoid exhibitionism. Jesus said, and when you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen by fasting by men. Truly, I say they have the reward in full. So they just kind of looked sad and didn't wash their face and rubbed ashes on them and said, look how spiritual I am, I am fasting. And Jesus, in essence, says, brush your hair, wash your face, do it in private. There are times to pray and fast corporately. And usually once or twice a year, there's some issue I ask the church at large to do that for. But then there are times when no one should know, except possibly your wife, so she doesn't make that meal, not to mention your one. But you are not to do it for the praise of men, not for exhibitionism, neither for legalism. You don't gain some special status before God. Our acceptance is on the merits of Christ's death, period. And yet the Pharisees did it for legalistic purposes. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. They did every Monday and Thursday. And I give a tithe of all that I get. They did it for all the wrong reasons. That's legalism. Third, avoid asceticism. Avoid asceticism. God doesn't want you to become some religious recluse, some ascetic. Vance Havner used to always say, there's no holiness in a hole. And indeed, he was right. God needs you out in the world so you can function in life. So Jesus said, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your Father who's in heaven will see you and he'll repay you. All right, that's enough said on fasting. Now, when you pray, God's not interested just in the rhetoric of your prayer, how spiritual it may sound. He's not interested in how long it may be. This Wednesday night is not the time to come up and catch on your prayer life. God is interested in the humility that is in your prayer and my prayer. And one of many ways in which that humility is expressed is in prayer and in fasting. But what's kind of neat back here in Daniel 9 is God prophesied something that was going to happen. And yet Daniel is praying about this thing that is going to happen. And it's very interesting because many times in the Bible, God commands his people to pray for something that he promises he's going to do. For example, the Bible predicts that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And yet Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is coming a day when God's will in heaven will literally actually be done upon the earth in a wholesale way when Messiah comes to rule and reign and fulfill those Old Testament prophet promises. Uh, God tells us that um, someday when the Prince of Peace comes back, there will be real peace in Jerusalem. And yet he tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us someday Jesus will literally physically actually come back to judge the living and the dead. In fact, John closes the revelation with Jesus' words, yes, I am coming quickly, and he immediately follows it with a prayer, even so come, Lord Jesus. It's interesting, even though God says he's going to do something, he often does that something in response to the prayers of his people. And of course, that's what God predicts in the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to these words again, a misquoted verse often. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, speaking of Israel, though it has legitimate application for us today, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope, but understand the context of the promise. Then, 
You will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place where I've sent you into exile. God said the exile is going to last for 70 years, but I'm going to bring you back, but I'm not going to bring you back until you search for me with all your heart. Why is Daniel praying? Because he looks around and he doesn't see that. And it breaks his heart. And the fact that that was not the tenor in everyone's heart is that when they finally get to leave, a lot of them don't want to leave because life in Babylon is too comfortable. But enough of them repent and get their hearts right that God then, in response to prayer, literally fulfills that promise. All right? Now, there's the occasion for his prayer. There's the humility in his prayer. Now let's think about the confession through his prayer. The confession through his prayer. In verses 4 and 5, we are reminded that he confessed all kinds of sin. Um, what follows really is one of the great model confessional prayers in all of the Bible. This prayer talks a lot about God's character, about God's covenant, God's commandment. But amongst that truth, there is an earnest, broken confession by this man. Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, alas, and I love the New American Standard, it retained the vocative. A lot of the new translations just say, Lord. The NAS says, oh, Lord. Why? Because in Hebrew, there's a depth of feeling here. Oh, Lord. When you see the vocative, you're seeing something that's coming out of the depths of a man's heart. Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God. By the way, not many people see God as great and awesome, do they? They don't think of God the way he is described in the Bible. They've made a God in their own image. Oh, God's a God of love. He's not going to deal with us justly or in wrath. But Daniel knows his God because he knows his Bible. I pray to the Lord, my God, and confess, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. At least three dimensions to his confession. I have them underlined. First, they committed iniquity. The word iniquity is a Hebrew word often translated perversity. It's not just sin. It's a word that literally means to be bent, to be crooked. You know, some people sin, but some people sin by, by perversion. There is some activity where we say, that's not just bad. That's sick. That's perverted. That was Daniel's day. We have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly. This Hebrew word just describes kind of a general disobedience towards God. And by the way, that's what God says the church will be like in the last days. Men's hearts will grow cold, lawlessness will be increased. Don't let that happen to you. Some of you tune me out 10 minutes into the sermon, 30 years being a pastor, I can read people after a while. I can, I mean, you can't hide it, friends. You, you can't hide from God, much less a pastor who just works with people. You wrote me off. Why? Because your heart is so indifferent towards God, so lackadaisical, so lukewarm, so apathetic. Don't let that happen to you. The scripture says that will characterize the church at the end of time. Second, we've acted wickedly. Third, we have acted rebelliously. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly and rebelled. And the word rebelled here in Hebrew is used in two ways, to rebel against a king of secular authority or to rebel against God. Obviously, here, the latter. How? By turning aside from your commandments and your ordinances. Sins of commission, sins of omission. There was a revolt amongst the people. They were shaking their fists by the way they lived and the face of God. And they said, we don't care. We've turned aside from your commandments and your ordinances. And so God saw their persistent disobedience. That's why he sent prophet after prophet to woo them back, but they didn't listen, and they refused to listen. And now those 70 years are nearly up, and they still haven't gotten the message. So he confesses all kinds of sins. Secondly, he also pleads for all kinds of people, all kinds of people. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. These people had the benefits of prophets who warned them to repent, but they didn't listen. The kings did not listen. The princes did not listen. Our fathers did not listen, and we have not listened, the people of the land. And so what's his conclusion? Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. 
but to us open shame as it is this day to the men of Judah. That is, all the Jews from Judah, the southern kingdom, we don't know righteousness like we should know it, like you are, God. Then he adds the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, that's the northern kingdom, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. So he's praying for the rest of the Jewish people, not just the Jewish people in Babylon, but those who are still left in Jerusalem and those who are scattered throughout the nations of the world through the Assyrian deportation. Open shame, verse 8, belongs to us. O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. What is he saying? He says, no one can be excused, not the kings, not the princes, not the fathers, not the people in Jerusalem, not the people scattered in all the countries, not us here in Babylon. We're all guilty. To you, the Lord our God, belongs compassion and forgiveness for we, circle that, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we, circle that, obeyed the voice of the Lord our God in order uh, to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. So in verse 7, he says, righteousness belongs to you. Shame to us. Here in verse 9, to the Lord God belongs compassion and forgiveness. What is he saying? He's saying the problem is not God. People want to blame God. The problem is us. As Pogo said in his comic strip in the 1950s, we have found the enemy and it is us. 50, uh, 28 times in the midst of, uh, between verses 4 and 15, I have everyone circled in my Bible. He uses the first person pronoun. Verse 5, we have sinned. Verse 6, we have not listened. Verse 8, we have sinned. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 10, nor have we obeyed the voice of God. Verse 11, we have sinned. Verse 14, we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, we have been wicked. You say, why is that significant? Well, number one, Daniel lived above his culture. Daniel was a man who lived an exemplary life, and yet he identifies with his people, that, that he lived above his culture. Remember Daniel 6 and verse 4, the commissioners, the satraps, they all try to get something against him, but they can't find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption or negligence could ever be found in him. Now, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Daniel was a sinner like us. But he is in a special league of people in the Bible. He's put with Joseph and Joshua and Nehemiah, of whom not a single sin is ever recorded. Why? Because God wants to emphasize and highlight with this man's life and those other men that in the midst of a depraved culture, you don't have to live like the culture. And yet, he identifies himself with the people. We have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled. That's real humility. He recognizes that there's corporate failure in the nation. By the way, Nehemiah does the same thing. Oh God, we have sinned against you. Ezra the priest does the same thing. Oh God, we have sinned. It's a model God gave us in Scripture and it still applies today. Why? Because we are members one of another. If you're here today and you're living in sin as a believer, you don't sin in isolation. You're hurting us. You're hurting this church. You're hurting its testimony. You're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting the testimony of the body of Christ, not only locally, but across the world, because they say, there goes another one of those Christians. You may not be sinning by sins of commission. Maybe there are sins of omission. You can't remember the last time you even cared for the soul of a lost person. Can't remember the last time you tried to invite someone to church, tried to take some through the plan of salvation. Why? Because your heart's so cold. Sad. And so here's Daniel, and his heart is sad. And he prays, God, we have done this. And we certainly, as members of the body of Christ, members of each other, should pray the same thing. Third, he acknowledged all kinds of consequences. He acknowledged all kinds of consequences. Daniel continues his prayer. He elaborates on why these people are in captivity. Verse 11, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. We have sinned against him. Verse 12, Thus he has confirmed his words 
which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like that which was done to Jerusalem. Put out in the margin next to verses 11 and 12, Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68. Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68. God said, if you will not obey me, the Lord your God, to observe and do all my commandments and my statutes, then I charge you all these curses will come upon you. And you read about curse after curse after curse. There are expressions of God's love and discipline on his people. And among them, put down Deuteronomy 28, 49, or just listen to 49 and 50. Um, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. From the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who shall have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. That's what God did through the Assyrians. That's what God did through the Babylonians. You disobey me. I will use these pagan kings as instruments of my discipline. And he did it. And so what is this prophet saying? Daniel is saying, we're forewarned by the law of Moses. As it is written in the law of Moses, this calamity has come upon us. By the way, Daniel believed in Mosaic authorship. He believed Moses wrote the Torah, unlike the liberal theologians of our day. Put next to verse 13, Deuteronomy 30. I'll let you go home and read that chapter, but let me read just a couple of verses. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and all your soul, according to all that I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. So Daniel adds here in verse 13, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God from turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Do you as a saved person ever have a time of confession before God? Will you name your sins? I'm not talking about keeping your salvation. That's a secure thing if you've really been saved. We're not talking about your union, but we're talking about your communion. We're not talking about your relationship, but your fellowship with God, your intimacy with God. Do you ever get low before God and just name your sins one by one? If it's been a long time, my friend, it just tells you your heart is a million miles away and you are becoming a part of the final apathetic generation that Jesus spoke of. Let me conclude with the petition of his prayer. Daniel begins in verse 15 by reminding God that he had once delivered his people out of Egypt. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. Why does he refer to the Exodus? Because in every Jew's mind, even to this day, the Exodus signals the great deliverance of God Almighty by those ten magnificent plagues in which He delivers them. We have sinned. We have been wicked, He quickly adds. Now in verse 16, He has a request. He prays for the removal of guilt. Oh Lord, there's evocative again, expressing the depth that's found in the Hebrew language. Oh Lord, in accordance with all Your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all the people around us. He speaks there of Jerusalem where God's holy mountain is, Mount Moriah, there in the Temple Mount where the temple of God, where the Shekinah glory would literally actually come into that place. And he's saying, God, your reputation is harmed. Your temple has been destroyed. Your people are living in sin. And listen to what the heathen nations around are saying about us. They are mocking the God of Israel. And this man's heart is broken. And so he's praying for the removal of guilt. But he also prays for the restoration of glory. 
So now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Underline those words in verse 17, for your sake. What is he saying? God, this is not for me. God, my heart beats after your reputation, after your, rep- after your testimony. God, do this for your own sake. Do you know what many of us are praying for? For our needs, for our wants, as they relate to us and not to God. We're praying for our country's sake. We're praying for our family's sake. We're praying for our own sake. But that's not what will get it done. We need to pray for God's sake, for His greatness, for His glory. We need to pray, God, help me with my finances that I might demonstrate to a lost world that you are a God who provides. God, help me with my marriage that it might honor Christ because it is to picture his love for his people. God, help me with my children, not just so I won't be embarrassed, but that you might demonstrate that we can raise children for the cause of Jesus Christ. Oh my God, verse 18, not in vain. And I hear God's people in this church sometimes say, Oh my God. Don't do that in vain. In his prayer, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. God, that city is your city. Your name is on that. And I'm jealous for your honor, for your reputation, for your name. And he adds, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people, uh, because your city and your people called by your name name. This man does not pray a man-centered prayer, but a God-centered prayer. He is praying for the glory of God. When we say at the end of a prayer, for your name's sake, we're saying for the glory and reputation of God is expressed in Jesus Christ. And listen, when you get concerned about the glory of God, You will move the hand of God. That's when the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now let me leave you with two applications. One as it relates to those of us who know Christ and the other to those who still need to. First, I want to ask the church here to set your face with me in prayer. To set your face with me in prayer. I'd like you to do that more in your homes. Some of you come every week around quarter of 11 and you miss the opportunity to pray in the ABFs. You should come to one of those because there's a time of corporate prayer. Even if you don't say anything verbally, you can grip your hearts with the hearts of God's people. Some of you are able to come on Wednesday nights, but you have your favorite television show. And you should be here if you can be here because there is prayer that is done individually, but there's prayer as expressed in the model prayer. Our Father who in heaven. That's corporate prayer. God's people praying together. And so we need to seek the living God. We need to ask for His help. We need to ask God to work. Do you see what is going on in our country? There's not just humanism. There's militant humanism. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to feel what is happening? We have apostate churches in our own community that either are afraid to talk about gay marriage or have now come out publicly and endorsed it. In a little town like this. Do you see the moral scene in our nation? The drug epidemic that just seems to be growing? The sexual immorality by heterosexuals both before and after marriage? 1.5 million babies slaughtered? And we have some presidential candidate this week before Planned Parenthood pleading that that woman's right be protected when God calls it an evil beyond evil. Do you realize what is happening? You say, is there anything we can do? Yes, there is. The people of God who know God can seek God in prayer. And God does business with those who mean business. Second, 
You can only approach God in the merits of Christ's death and resurrection. You can only approach Him in the merits of Jesus' work. We'll come to verse 21 next time, but there's a small detail often overlooked because Daniel's answer to prayer comes in the time of the evening offering. That's not by accident because there are no coincidences in the Bible. God is affirming that the basis for our prayer is the blood of the Messiah, the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices down at the evening offering were a foreshadow of what the Lord Jesus was going to do. And when did Jesus die on Golgotha and give his precious blood during the time of the evening offering at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and not by accident? And if you are here today and you've never met the Savior, you cannot come on the basis of human merit. You cannot come on the basis of your good deeds or golden rule or church membership or anything else you can think of because it is only on the basis of Christ's perfect shed blood that you can be forgiven and approach a God who is absolutely holy. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Holy Father, we come to you today thanking you for this model prayer that you gave us in your word, a prayer not just to make us intelligent sinners, but to make us more like Jesus Christ. All scripture, you said, even this text, is given by your breath that we might be adequately equipped for every good work. So as we leave this place today, we ask that you would seal the lessons that you would want us individually to take away. I pray that our confession before you would be real and broken because a broken heart you do not despise. And may our prayers be for your glory and your honor, for you said your glory you will never share with another. I pray today for someone here, someone in Graniteville, Bluffton, someone live streaming in another part of the planet, who is unsure of their salvation, help them by the Spirit of God to confess Jesus as Lord. Help them today, Father, to see that Jesus completely finished all of the debts that we owed you there on the cross with the perfect shed blood that he gave on our behalf. Thank you for your promise that anyone who will believe what you said, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Father, help someone in childlike faith to simply say, Lord Jesus, save even me. Thank you that it is a trustworthy statement that deserves your full acceptance that you came, Lord Jesus, to save sinners. May we never be ashamed of him. May our hearts be not apathetic, but alive and passionate for the one who gave everything for us. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name, and for your name's sake, amen.